Okay, uh, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Gospel of John again. Uh, welcome to all you who are in class and to those who are out there in that vast streaming audience, uh, <laughs> the multitudes out there <laughs> watching from all over the globe, you know, wherever, <laughs> wherever you're at, you know. I don't know what time it is right now in Russia, but <laughs> so I don't know if Putin's watching or not. I doubt it. I kind of... I need a world clock up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not 12 hours, but it's probably about uh, eight hours, probably at least over there, eight, something like that. All right, uh, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll uh, pick up here with chapter 12. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you so much for your grace again to us this day and uh, as we think about what's happening over there in Ukraine and, and uh, how people are suffering and the difficulties they're under, we, we do pray for them, especially for our Christian brothers and sisters and those who are laboring for the gospel. This is, uh, makes for a very difficult time, but maybe it'll be a time that uh, can be used uh, to get people to reflect on the most important things. And it makes us thankful that for all that we have here and, uh, you know, all the blessings we have, Lord, from you and how we're able to live in peace and safety. And, uh, and therefore, uh, we have these opportunities to study your word, proclaim your word. Uh, and so we pray you'll help us to do so in the days ahead as you give us these days. Thank you for the time tonight we have as we look at the Gospel of John. Pray our minds and hearts will be open to the truth as we look at it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are looking uh, at the last chapter here now in Jesus' public ministry. Uh, this is John chapter 12 and uh, this is where we're at. John chapter 12. This is the uh, supper uh, at Bethany, um, and it starts here in verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So, um, so Jesus was in Ephraim. Uh, remember the last time he left uh, Jerusalem, because of the opposition. Uh, remember, he had gone there and his disciples had, had uh, actually said, we shouldn't, let's don't go there because, you know, they'll kill you. And so he goes anyway. Uh, but then he withdraws when there's opposition from the Jewish leaders. They're, they're going to, they're going to, they're killing him and trying to kill him, attempting. He leaves. And so he, uh, he has been in, he's been outside of Jerusalem and now he's coming back to the suburbs of Jerusalem, Bethany, which is just a village just east, a couple miles east, you remember, of Jerusalem, as we talked about before. So this is six days before the Passover. So we are, um, uh, we are uh, on that chart, you can see I've got us right there at the spring of A.D. 30. So we're right right before the last week of Jesus' life, six days before. We're just um, 
we're, we're right there. And uh, so he's come to Bethany, and the text says, number two, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a, about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So I say here, six days before Passover, Jesus left Ephraim uh, and came to Bethany. So I'm trying to explain the, the chronology here, if you can follow it here. Six days before the Passover, the Passover uh, began on Friday of that year, um, on Friday, uh, Friday night, um, Friday, the Passover begins 6 p.m. on Friday, you know, or, or the Sabbath, you know, begins. So the, it's, always, it's always the night before uh, when, at, at, when the sun goes down um, at sunset and then to the next day till sunset then. So six days before the Passover would have been Saturday. So the, the Passover begins the next Friday. I'm getting, getting, confu getting you confused and me confused here. So the Passover will be on a Friday. This is six days before. That would be Saturday before the, the uh, Passover. And Jesus is going to be crucified then. Uh, which began the Friday evening before. So I'm trying to get all this confused. So he's arriving on six days before. That would be Saturday. He's arriving, that would be Friday evening. So he's, he's a Friday evening before the Passover, a week, one week before. Jesus probably arrived at Bethany that Friday evening, not traveling on Saturday the Sabbath. So he would have probably arrived before Saturday, before 6 p.m., because Saturday would be the Sabbath. So he's one week before. He's coming on Friday afternoon, before, the, before Friday evening, before the Sabbath begins Friday evening and goes through Saturday evening. And the supper occurred on the Sabbath Saturday evening, after sundown when the Sabbath had ending. So he, he arrives there. He's not traveling on the Sabbath, probably. He arrives on Friday afternoon. <laughs> then you have the Sabbath on Saturday. And this is Saturday evening after the Sabbath is over, is where we think we're, the chronology is here. So he's, he's, this is Saturday evening after the Sabbath has ended. This would explain the large crowd of Jews in verse 9 that we'll see later, who came to see Jesus and Lazarus, not something done on the Sabbath. So uh, you can only travel so far on the Sabbath. Even today, Orthodox Jews only travel so far on the Sabbath, uh, which is uh, 3,000 cubits is what they reckon that you can travel on the Sabbath. So this would be too far to go from Jerusalem to uh, Bethany, you couldn't travel that far. So this must have been that Saturday evening so that Jews could come from Jerusalem. That evening, a dinner uh, was given in Jesus' honor at which also were present the twelve, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and according to the parallel account in Matthew 
and Mark, a man named Simon the leper. Simon is not mentioned in John, but is named as the owner of the house in Matthew 26.6 and Mark 14.3. He apparently was one of the many lepers that Jesus healed. Remember, throughout his ministry, Jesus healed a number of lepers. Um, the event uh, becomes a matter of dispute here, as we'll see, because of the action of Mary here. You know, she, uh, she takes this expensive perfume uh, and she anoints the feet of Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair. Uh, now, if you read the account in Matthew and Mark, it says she also anointed his head also. She anointed his head and she anointed his feet. Uh, the, the, the word pint here, uh, the Greek word here, um, is about 11 ounces in, you know, in, in our uh, in our weighing today. So this is about 11 ounces. This uh, uh, Livtra, this is about 11 ounces. And this nard, this says a pure nard, is an oil extract from the nard plant. That's, that's a plant that's grown in India, as I understand. So she's anointing his feet with something that would be very expensive and was quite unusual. Somebody to use this kind of expensive especially wiping uh, his feet with her hair. That would be unusual. Uh, and, you know, what we understand is the custom would be that a woman didn't normally put her hair down in public. And so uh, this would be quite unusual. Well, then there's an objection from Judas in verses 4 through 6. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Um, so, you know, we, we have this very negative view of Judas but, you know, as we'll see, the disciples, they, don't, they haven't caught on to that. I mean, John knows it now, but as we'll see, you remember when Jesus gives him that piece of uh, sop from the Last Supper and says, go do what you're going to do. And, and they don't understand the disciples. I mean, apparently Judas appears to be very genuine. You know, he looks like a genuine believer and he must be trusted. <laughs> He's carrying the money, you know. Uh, so don't ever trust the treasure in your church. That's rich, rich character. Don't, don't trust, don't trust rich. Because, you know, don't trust the treasure. I'm joking, joking, of course. But he's a treasure, so he's a trusted. You, you know, you know. Normally, we we tr we we want somebody trusted to handle the money and so forth. So uh, you know, we had this negative view, but they didn't certainly have that negative view at the time. I'm I'm pretty sure. Um. So um. I say here, immediately uh, Judas objected to the anointing, arguing that the ointment should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. According to Matthew and Mark, others, including the disciples, had the same thought. This perfume is worth an enormous sum, a year's wages for a laboring man. That's a 
tremendous amount of money when you think about, boy. Either Mary and her family were wealthy or perhaps she used some family heirloom. That's one suggestion uh, because it talks about in verse 7, she should save it um, for, the, for the day of my burial, save it like it was saved up or it was something they had as an heirloom or a piece of wealth or something. Uh, maybe that's what the deal is here. But for some reason, they had this very expensive, had this very expensive perfume. Um, and as we said, the case, in the case of Judas, the, his, his concern was not about the wise use of the funds, but personal greed. <laughs> because he's the keeper of the money bag, we're told here. And he used to, uh, the NIV is translating that very well for us because the Greek tense indicates a customary action. He used to do this. He did it more than once. This was his custom to help himself to what was in the bag. Here's Jesus' answer in verses 7 through 8. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. So maybe this, as we said, saved up. This was something she had. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So Jesus rejects the false piety of Judas since he sees Mary's action as anointing for his burial. It's doubtful that this was clearly what Mary intended since no one seemed to understand before the cross that Jesus had to die. We talked about that before. The disciples seemed clueless. I know Jesus announced it, we talked about, but they rejected that. They couldn't believe it. Uh, Mary probably only meant this to be an act of costly, humble devotion, much like Caiaphas, she signaled more than she knew. She didn't realize she was anointing for his death here. Um, and Jesus can allow this extravagance, uh, as we see here, because uh, he will not always be with them. The poor uh, will always be available for the disciples to, sit, to assist. He says, the poor you will have with you and you can help them, you know, uh, Mark 4, 14, 7, the poor you have always, the poor you always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. Um, so what are we to make of that? You know, I I would most people make of it that um, Jesus is simply telling us the reality of human depravity. That because we live in a sinful world and we're sinful people. Uh, we're always going to have those who are richer <laughs> and those who are poor. Uh, doesn't mean we shouldn't try to alleviate some of that. It's, it's not saying don't do anything about that, but it's just a fact of life that some people are going to be poor due to no, nothing, nothing but hard providence. They just have misfortunes. Some people are going to be poor because of their own sin. <laughs> Some people are going to be wealthy because of their good fortune, and some people are going to be wealthy because they sinfully got the money, you know. So there's no, there's no getting around that in this particular life, Jesus says. So uh, you can't, you can't uh, criticize every use of money. You know, you can't criticize every, every, every use of, of, of uh, wealth and so forth. Uh, it just that's the way that's the way this is in this particular world. 
Look at the results then in verses 9 through 11. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So since Jesus had immediately left for Ephraim after raising of Lazarus, few people had seen him since that time. Possibly Lazarus had stayed out of the public eye also. But when both Jesus and Lazarus were present at this dinner, the word leaked out and many people learned of Jesus' presence in Bethany and came to see both him and Lazarus. I mean, this would be a tremendous thing. Here's, here's this man they knew who had died and now he's been raised from the dead. That's naturally going to draw a crowd, obviously. And so Lazarus becomes a, an object of the plot of the chief priest also because uh, his testimony, as we see here, had caused his life, the fact he'd been raised from the dead, would cause a lot of people to put their faith in Jesus. And they're trying to get rid of Jesus. They're, <laughs> they're disturbed by his popularity. They want, they want to kill him if they can. And they ultimately succeed, though they don't really understand that they're really all this is in God's good providence. Well, the entrance into the temple, the triumphal entry, so the next day, here's Bethany as we talked about before. Uh, the next day, the great crowd had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, this is, this is Passover. And so uh, people are coming to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover and then unleavened bread the week following. Uh, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So on, on the day following the supper at Bethany, Jesus went with his disciples to Jerusalem. This is presumably Sunday of the Passion Week. Sunday, the last week of our Lord's life uh, physical life before he's crucified. Uh, the great crowd is composed of pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Josephus, remember, is that Jewish writer we talk about who wrote, who lived during Jesus' lifetime and wrote, you know, a lot, a couple, several books about the Jews in this period. He describes a Passover when he claims 2.7, 2,700,000 people took part not counting the defiled and foreigners who were present in the city. That seems like a lot of people <laughs> in Jerusalem, doesn't it? Uh, and so some people think that's inflated. I don't know. I mean, if you've been to Jerusalem, uh, there's only, what, six and a half million, seven million people in Israel, the whole place, you know. <laughs> and so Jerusalem's got a lot of them, but I, don't, I know it's not got a population. Of, I don't think it's got a population of two million today. So that's a lot of people who would be pilgrims, and maybe, maybe that's the case. Uh, I mean, it, it seems possible in the sense if everybody's supposed to come for the Passover, then that would draw a huge number of people. So maybe that's right. It's certainly a huge, huge number uh, coming for the Passover. Uh, uh, apparently, as Jesus was on his way from Bethany to Jerusalem, some of these people came out to meet him. 
Many of these were probably Galileans familiar with his ministry and may have included others who had heard about the raising of Lazarus. So Jesus had spent a long time, you know, in Galilee. Jews there would come down and they knew about Jesus. They, they had seen his ministry and that kind of thing. So a lot of people were familiar with it. So maybe that this is probably part of the crowd there. Uh, they uh, met him waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna. This word is a transliteration. That means it's just uh, the, uh, the uh, Hebrew word translated in, or the, the letters are just, you just take the Hebrew word and make an English word out of it. In this case, a Greek word. But it means something like save or help. Uh, it's used in Psalm 118.25, but by this time it had come to be a, a term of acclamation or praise. So it's just Hosanna. It's a, it's a way of praising or acclamation, uh, excitement, joy, that kind of thing. Uh, the palm branches were a custom. Uh, they were used to uh, welcome a, a notable person. Who, who would come in. This was a, this was a custom. We know that uh, we, we have historical, historical references this. Josephus talks about one of these. We've kind of talked about this before, but remember we, I said that, um, that um, in the 4th century, 300s, Alexander the Great conquered all of this area and so forth, and after he died... This, this area of Palestine was controlled by one of his generals, one of, one of, the, one of the four families that controlled this. And uh, one of them that was controlling it in the second century, they're called the Seleucid because the, that was the name of the dynasty, the Seleucids. They're also called Syrians because that's the geographical name of that area. Syria, Assyria, Syria. So... Uh, so the Jews from, you know, 300 B.C. Uh, right up until 166, we talked about, called the Maccabean Revolt. Eventually the Jews revolted against these Syrians. And uh, they started driving them out and so forth. And the first brother was called Judas. Judas is uh, Judas um, Maccabeus. Then later, his brother Simon became the ruler. And Josephus describes this famous, uh, this famous scene where he drives the Syrians out of Jerusalem. Because he, he, there's these battles back and forth, and he's able to just completely drive the, the Syrians out. And he marches in, and they take these palm branches, and they, they, they wave these palm branches at his coming in. And so this was a kind of a custom to welcome a famous, illustrious person. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're suggesting he's the king, and they say it, you know. Um, this, this phrase, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as I said, that comes from Psalm 118.25. And that one is identified here as the king of Israel. Now, Psalm 118 was, a, is, was considered a messianic psalm. So it seems clear the people, by quoting you know, Psalm 118, 
They know it's the Messianic. They're, they're recognizing him as the Messiah. They're recognizing him as the king. Now, remember, they've been expecting this. They wanted this. They tried at one time to make him king, you remember, and they've been wanting him to reveal himself as king, drive out these Romans and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we know that's not his mission in his first coming is to set himself up as king. That's why they, his disciples don't even understand about when he talks about his death and he's going to be crucified and raised. They can't, they can't fit that into their messianic expectations and so forth. So they, the people think it's happening now. He's coming, you know. But notice what happens here next, uh, verses 14 through 15 under the prophecy. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of I, O Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. I say the synoptics accounts give more details about how Jesus arranged for the ride on the donkey. Instead of riding on a war horse, which would have whipped up the political aspirations of the crowd, Jesus rode on a young donkey. So he's, he's choosing that lowly animal to ride in on. Normally you expect a general to come in, like Simon did. <laughs> like conquerors did on a horse, you know, but not Jesus. He purposely arranges for this because he's trying to give a different message. Uh, he is the messianic king. He comes in peace fulfilling, you know, Zechariah 9.9. Uh, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Uh, now, Neither, neither his disciples or the crowd really understands what's the significance of all this. Uh, you know, don't be afraid. That's taken from Isaiah. And then this other phrase, O daughter of Zion, or don't be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Um, so John is telling us, explaining how he's fulfilling these prophecies in the Old Testament but it's not the prophecy that they're thinking about. They're thinking about the king coming to set up his kingdom and they don't, they're not seeing it as, they don't understand what Jesus is doing here. Verses 16 through 19, we see the reaction. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was crucified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So they don't understand, what is this, coming in on a donkey and what's, what's going on here? They don't, they don't get it. Just as in the prophecy about Jesus destroying the temple in 2.19, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days, when the disciples did not understand what he meant after he was raised from the dead, until he's raised from the dead. Uh, remember back in chapter 2, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. So back in chapter 2, he said something they didn't understand. Destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. What does he mean by that? Well, once he's dead and he's raised again, they understand what he said in 2.19. And here again, they understand, you know, afterward, as we do. <laughs> so that's what's hard for us because we have all this revelation. We get it and <laughs> we understand it all but they're, they're mystified by what's going on and what's taking place. Um, uh, they don't understand until after Jesus, it says, is glorified. 
When, when the gospel talks about his glorification, it's including his death, resurrection. So the, the gospel thinks about these as sort of like one event. Death, resurrection, glorification, return to the Father. It's all just one uh, kind of an event. Um, so what he was saying about his messiahship, this riding on the donkey, was not fully understood until we really get to Pentecost. And Jesus is going to explain that in John 14 and John 16 when he's talking about the Spirit comes. He says, you know, you can't understand all this stuff. He says, you can't bear this right now, he'll say. You don't get what I'm saying right now, but you will when the advocate comes, as the NIV says, when the counselor comes, the paracletos. So they don't, they don't get it all right now, but they will eventually understand how all these things fit together. Um, so they understand he's being held to the messianic king, uh, but they don't understand why he's riding this donkey, riding this war horse. Uh, they don't understand that his first coming is the coming of the Messiah to suffer, you know, uh, fulfilling different Old Testament prophecies, uh, Isaiah 53, as we know. Verse 17, Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So there's two different groups of people mentioned in these verses. First was the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb. These would have been those from Bethany who would not be surprised, uh, who, would not, who, who would not be suppressed in their witness. In verse 18, there is also a crowd who came out from Jerusalem to meet Jesus. Uh, they had heard of the miracle of Lazarus, uh, but they hadn't seen Jesus in Jerusalem since then. Many people, when, when they had heard that he'd performed this raising of Lazarus, they, they'd heard he did this, but they hadn't seen him. He's been gone. He's up in Ephraim. Where is he at? Well, now they come out. So you get a huge, good number of people coming out to see this entry into Jerusalem. Verse 19, So the Pharisees said to one another, This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Remember, the Sanhedrin had already decided that Jesus should be put to death back in chapter 11. But the Pharisees see no way to carry out this plan. It's getting nowhere because Jesus is only getting stronger politically. In fact, the whole world has gone after him. That's, I say, somewhat of a hyperbole, exaggeration, but that's, you know, it's just like, man, everybody's flocking to this guy. It's not entirely hyperbolic what John writes here, exaggeration, uh, because when he says, look, the whole world has gone after him, John's going to explain that a little bit about how it's more than just Jews that are, that, are, that are interested in Jesus and are coming out to Jesus. That's what we see next with the request of these certain Greeks. Verse 20, the request of the Greeks, the wish of the Greeks. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethesda, Bethsaida, I'm sorry, in Galilee, Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. 
Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Um, these men were not Greek-speaking Jews, but they were Gentiles. There were certain Greeks who came to the festival. Apparently, they were God-fearers. Who are God-fearers? They are Gentiles who had forsaken pagan gods and worshipped the God of Israel, but who stopped short of adopting circumcision and the Mosaic food laws. Such men and women could worship in synagogues and at the temple in Jerusalem, but could enter only as far as the court of Gentiles. You know, examples of people like this are like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. You remember Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the centurion that, uh, that uh, Peter goes you know, and, and takes the gospel to. So there were, there, were, there were people like that. And Paul encounters many, many of them on his missionary journeys, like Lydia. Remember Lydia, uh, the woman he meets in, in Philippi and so forth. So when Paul would go to the synagogues on his, on his journeys, he would, uh, he would meet, of course, Jews there, but also these God-fearers. These were, as we said, Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel and forsaken their pagan gods, but they, they didn't adopt circumcision. The males didn't, uh, which you would have to do if you wanted to be a proselyte. You could convert to Judaism, Remember, in order to con convert to Judaism, you had to uh, be circumcised as a male. You had to be instructed by a rabbi. You had to be immersed and offer a sacrifice in the temple. So there was a procedure for people who wanted to be full converts. And, you know, most of the Gentiles wouldn't adopt this, but they, uh, they did believe that the God of Israel was the true God, like Cornelius, like Lydia, and others. So, uh, as I say here, they probably, they probably come to Jerusalem to worship God in connection with the Passover. The men under discussion requested a private interview with Jesus, and the request was conveyed by Philip and Andrew. Uh, I, you know, why they wanted to see Jesus is not clear here. It doesn't, the text doesn't tell us, uh, and they approached Philip here. Um, they, may, they may have approached Philip because of his, um, his Greek name. Uh, Philip, his name in Greek is, is a Greek name rather than a Hebrew name that's come into Greek. So it could be that they approached him. He's from Bethsaida, which is, you know, up here. This is, uh, you know, more of a Gentile area up here. They, they may have had some connection with him. They could be from this area here called the Decapolis. We don't know if we've talked much about that, but um, this area here called the Decapolis um, was uh, an area, was a, was a, a non-Jewish area for the most part. Uh, Decapolis means 10 cities. There's kind of like 10 major cities in that geographical region. Um, and so it's under the control of, usually it's under the control of the governor of Syria, just to the north of Palestine there. And uh, that area was mainly a Gentile area, mainly not, not 
too many Jews, Jesus does go over to there in his ministry. We don't see it in John here, but he does go over there in the Gospels. So um, it could be that they're from the Decapolis and they, and they know Philip. They have some connection. We don't know. Uh, maybe, why didn't they just go to Jesus and ask him? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> One possibility is they may have assumed he wouldn't talk to Gentiles. I mean, Jews didn't normally associate with Gentiles. They're unclean. So you don't normally you, you separate and all that from, from Gentiles. They may have said, well, there's this Jewish rabbi, and so he's not going to associate with Gentiles and so forth like that. So they may have decided we just can't approach him directly. Let's go to Philip. Uh, you know, he's, a, he's got a Greek name. He's maybe he's up that, that area. Maybe they knew him or had some knowledge of him. But maybe they just feared he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't receive Gentiles. Uh, maybe Philip was not sure himself. You know, it says Philip doesn't go to Jesus. He goes to Andrew. <laughs> and Andrew and Philip in turn go to Jesus. So for whatever reasons, we don't understand all the interworkings here. They're, they're, they're not approaching Jesus directly. They go through an intermediary. Well, the response of Jesus. Uh, well, the response is this parable here. We'll see in 23 through 26. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I say it does not appear, strictly speaking, that Jesus responds to the direct requests of the Gentiles. Now, I think he is going to respond, but he's going to respond, or he's going to say something at the end of this discussion, we'll get to it, that is kind of a response to these Gentiles. He's, he's going to, he is going to say something here, and I'll, so wait for it. <laughs> he's going to say something that is kind of a response to the Gentiles, but it doesn't look like he does, you know. Uh, he just says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, so he doesn't appear to respond to the direct request, but to the situation. So he's really responding here to the situation their request represents. At the very moment the Jewish authorities are displaying their greatest opposition to him, the Gentiles are seeking his attention. Now we can think ahead. We know what's coming <laughs> when Jesus will say, I want you to go and take the gospel to all nations, all gen We know what's coming here. There's going to be some, there's going to be some uh, Gentiles coming in here pretty quickly. But at this point, uh, you know, Jesus has said earlier, you know, you're, 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 you disciples are to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. You're not supposed to be ministering out to the Gentiles. Their mission was not at this time to the Gentile nations at all. That's going to come afterward. So, it appears that this coming of the Gentiles is sort of like a trigger. Uh, it signals the hour has come. Okay, now the Gentiles are coming. The hour has now come for my death, my resurrection, and my instructions about the church and the future ministry and how that's going to be really a gen you know, that's all coming. So uh, the hour has come for his, uh, you know, for his, for his death, his his, his, uh, his resurrection, his exaltation, his glorification. Um, so the answer, as I say, will come here 
but you can kind of see it. I'm trying to indicate to you what, it, what it's about. It's, he's, he is responding to them by saying, in order for the Gentiles to be included, my hour has got to come. You know, I've got to die. I've got to be resurrected. All these things that have to happen if the Gentiles are going to be included in God's program here. Um, after his death and resurrection, Israel as a whole rejects the Messiah as a whole. But the Gentiles gladly receive him. So it's coming. <laughs> He's going to respond to the Gentiles in a tremendous way. But Jesus has got to be glorified before the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Verse 24, Verily, verily, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. In the previous verse, we learn that the time for Jesus to be glorified has come. That glorification includes His death. Now Jesus gives a parable to explain the significance of His death more fully. Jesus' glorification is tied to the fact that He refuses to glorify Himself. His glorification by the Father is a result of His obedience to the will of the Father, which culminates in His obedient death on the cross. So just as a kernel of wheat dies... In order to produce a harvest, so Jesus' death, as we have already noted, already in the gospel, is for the salvation of others. Uh, so the death of the seed is going to be vindicated by the harvest. Uh, Jesus' death is going to produce a great crop. <laughs> His glorification. He needs to die, and then we're going to, we're going to produce a great harvest here. Verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. The principle of the parable that death is the necessary condition for the generation of life is also applicable to Jesus' followers. 1 Peter 2, 21. To this you were called because, Jesus, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. The person who loves his life will lose it. To love one's life is to give it priority over the interest of God's program. And so to love one's life, to absolutely love one's life, to make that your priority is just a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty over our lives. I mean, no one wants to die, but to make our lives and our rights the priority is to deny God's sovereignty, deny God's rights. It's, it's, it's idolatrous, in a sense, uh, to focus on ourself. That's really the heart of sin. And, you know, if you do that, a person who, who does that, that's going to result in perdition. But the person who hates their life, now this is, this is exaggeration. This is trying to make a point. The person who loves their life to the extreme, you know, but the person who hates their life is the one who denies themselves. And as Jesus says, um, you know, Mark 8, he says, whoever uh, wants to be my disciple must deny, deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So that's the attitude of the regenerate person. We're, 
the attitude of the regenerate person is to not uh, think that our lives are the most important thing on this earth. Um, as I say, we don't, this is a Semitic idiom about loving and hating. You know, Jesus talks about if you don't hate your mother and father, you know, you can't be my disciple. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the idea of where are, your, uh, where are your values at? What do you value most? Um, so instead of loving ourselves, it has to be replaced by devotion to Jesus. A devotion, he says, that will seek to honor the Father um, and seek honor from the Father, not from the world. A person who loves himself is going to you know, seek ultimate honor from the world. Then we have the prayer in verses 27, 28a. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This prayer was voiced as Christ contemplated his approaching death. As he faced the cross, his soul was deeply troubled. Jesus asked himself, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Jesus is only raising a hypothetical possibility, but as soon as it is raised, it's jettisoned. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. What then shall he pray? He prays, Father, glorify your name. And so that's really just an articulation of the principle that's controlled Jesus' whole life. His whole life in ministry has been to glorify God's name. Um, so the servant doesn't do his own will. Uh, he performs the will of the one who sent him. That's what we learn about Jesus. Jesus is performing the will of the Father who sent him, even if that means the cross, and it does mean the cross in this particular case. Well, then the voice from heaven. Then a voice from, came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice was your, for your benefit, not mine. Jesus' prayer is immediately answered by a voice from heaven. This was the third occurrence of the divine voice during Jesus' ministry. There's one in his baptism. Remember, his transfiguration. Uh, and at his, this, at his passion here. I have glorified, it refers to Jesus' earthly ministry, the demonstration of powerful sign miracles. Will glorify, it refers to Jesus' death and exaltation. Though Jesus distinctly heard the voice, the crowd did not. <clears throat> Some of them interpreted the sound as thunder. Others who recognized the sound as speech said an angel had spoken. But if the crowd did not understand the words, how can Jesus say that the voice was for their benefit? Seems rather strange. It may be that the idea is that although they do not understand now, one day many may become disciples and reading back over this gospel, they will find help in their understanding of Jesus and his ministry. You know, as we've said, as said many times, there are many things that happen in Jesus' ministry that the disciples don't understand until much later. As I've just quoted, you know, John 16, 12, 
Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. And so uh, Jesus, a lot of things happen in Jesus' ministry and his life. John records them in the gospel. We can, we can get it. We understand it now. They didn't understand at the time. Um, I mean, even though the crowd may have not understood, the fact that it was a voice from heaven should have alerted them to something important is going on here. Uh, something really different is happening. We're having a kind of a turning point in redemptive history. This is a, a, a big event is, is, is about to take place. Uh, you know, for those who have ears to hear, um, Jesus' words are going to take on this fresh urgency here. Um, and the next, verses, the next verses here are going to set forth the implications of what the voice said. Uh, the voice says, I have glorified it and will glorify it. Jesus is going to explain what that means. We're coming to a critical event, a turning point in redemptive history, the cross. <laughs> you know, the central point here, we might say, of, of human history. Verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world be driven out. The coming hour of Jesus' passion and glorification is the time for the judgment of this world. In one sense, the judgment is reserved for the end of the age. But as we've already seen, texts like John 3, that, I think that should be 18. I've got it here. Remember, Jesus says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So judgment begins with the first coming of Christ. I mean, Jesus always says, I didn't come as a judge, but my ministry brings judgment because if you don't believe, you're judged already, you're condemned already. The cross brings condemnation to those who reject Christ. It's also the time when the prince of this world will be driven out. Now, it might seem that, that uh, the cross was Satan's triumph. Satan, you know, uh, I'm sure he thought he was triumphing here. It was, a, it was victory because here we have the Son of God being killed. I'm sure he thought that was, that was, a, that was a, a great thing. Uh, but in fact, it was his defeat, as we know. <laughs> it signals ultimately his doom. Now, we know that'll take some time. It's in the future when he's ultimately, he's cast out of heaven, Revelation 12, and then ultimately he's cast in the lake of fire. But Jesus' death seals his doom. Uh, the prince will be driven out, the prince of the, this world. He's ultimately doomed. Um, so Jesus, you know, uh, when Jesus was glorified, when he's lifted up to heaven uh, by means of the cross, you know, Satan will be dethroned. <laughs> ultimately, he won't even be allowed to be in God's presence, I said in, in, in Revelation 12. Um, so his, his, his defeat has not taken place yet. He's still, 
you know, running around seeking whom he may devour, but his defeat is certain. It's rendered certain by the coming of Jesus' hour, uh, by his death and exaltation renders Satan's judgment for certain. Verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The coming crisis of the cross would draw all people to Christ. The all reminds us of what triggered these statements, the arrival of the Greek. So this is sort of the answer that I was telling you about. You know, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus says here, when I'm lifted up, then I will draw all people to myself. Here the all people means, you know, all kinds of people, not just Jews, like 1 Timothy 2.1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. What does Paul mean by all people? For, for every, everybody, for kings, those in authority, you know, just all groups of people, all kinds of people, every group kind of people. And Jesus says here, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. I mean, that's not something the Jews expected. Here's a Jewish Messiah. There, there was, they didn't see any place for the Gentiles. Even his disciples didn't. Um, but Jesus has talked about this. Remember John chapter 10, he says, he says, remember we had the sheepfold. The sheepfold is Judaism. And he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I'm going to bring them. I'm going to bring them. Jew and Gentile in one body in the church. So this is probably Jesus' answer to the Greeks who approached him. They approached him. We want to see Jesus. We want to have a relationship with Jesus. <laughs> well, here it is. Uh, when I'm lifted up, you know, death, resurrection, then uh, you'll have this relationship with me. Then we see the final appeal here in verses 34 through 36. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The crowd correctly understands that Jesus is speaking of His death, but they cannot reconcile his, this with their idea of the Messiah. Based upon their understanding of the law, that is the Old Testament Scriptures, they thought the Messiah would remain forever. It's not clear what passages are passages they had in mind. But, you know, there are some. Isaiah 9-7, He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom. Of his greatness, of his government and peace, there'll be no end. You know. So the Messiah's coming, there'll be no end. Ezekiel 37, They will live in the land and I... And I give to my servant Jacob the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And now he's talking about leaving. Psalm 89. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David. That his line will be continued forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Daniel 7.14. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David, that his line will be... <laughs> I got the wrong 
<laughs> I got, it's not quite Daniel 7, 14, is it? Uh, let's see here. If I can bring up uh, Daniel 7, 14 here for us. Uh, let's see here. Daniel 7, 14. He was given authority. This is, uh, you know, the... In my vision I looked and there was before me one like a son of man. And we talked about before, remember, that it appears that Jesus chose this title, Son of Man, as a messianic title. That this is, he wanted to have a messianic title that he could invest meaning upon. And so he chose this probably from Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked and therefore before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worship Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So you can see maybe they would get the idea that the Messiah will remain forever. You know, what is this, what is this stuff, you know, uh, about this death and all this? The Son of Man will be lifted up. Uh, so... Uh, and then they say, um, because of this conflict between uh, Jesus' reference to death and their belief that the Messiah would be triumphant and be eternal, they say, who is this Son of Man? Meaning, what kind of Son of Man Messiah does Jesus have in mind? It's, it's not the kind of Son of Man Messiah that we had. You know, this is not, this is not what we're, we understand. Verse 35, then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. I see a mistake there, believed. <laughs> Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus does not answer their question about the Son of Man and what kind of Son of Man is this. He basically challenges them to give up their preconceived notions of the Messiah and walk in the light as long as they have it. Of course, the Messiah will remain forever, but this only comes about through his death and glorification. So if they walk in the light that they now have, that is, believe in Jesus, believe in what He's telling him, they're telling them, believe in what He's been saying, then the darkness will not come upon them, He says. It won't overtake you. Believe in the light now. And when He had finished, He left and hid Himself from them. Okay, what time is it here? 8.14. Well, we better stop there for tonight and uh, we will pick this up and kind of summarize chapter 12 and then we'll get into the uh, 
Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 and following. Thank you so much. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week.